going to look together at Lord's Day 41. If you have a Psalter hymnal at home, that'll be on page 54 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But uh, before we read the two questions and answers of that, we're going to read one of the many passages which that question, those questions and answers summarize. And that is Ephesians 5, the first 20 verses. Ephesians 5, the first 20 verses. Now, Ephesians, I've mentioned this before, Ephesians has two parts. The first part tells us what God has done to redeem us and to knit us together as a single people who are made to, to glorify God. And then in the second half, verses or chapters 4 through 6, we find the now what section. Therefore, because of what God has done, because of how He has saved us and transformed us, how now shall we live? And this is right in the midst of that calling for God's people to respond to what the Lord has done. And he says here, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints." Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now summarizing that and many other passages, Lord's Day 41 asks us, Concerning the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? And the answer is that God condemns all unchastity. We should therefore thoroughly detest it and married or single live decent and chaste lives. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. And God wants both kept clean and holy. That is why he forbids everything which incites unchastity, whether it be actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a problem with the seventh commandment. 
And the problem that we have is that we're too polite to talk about it. That's a substantial problem because the world around us is not equally polite. And our children, our next generation, they're listening to whomever speaks. In His seventh commandment, God says, You shall not commit adultery. And our children, at a relatively early age, will ask what that means. And in answer, we're tempted to tell them, You know what, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Or, let's talk about that when you're older. But meanwhile, they turn on the television, they boot up the internet, they spend time with friends in the neighborhood, and they are bombarded by the very things that we fear to mention. We need not ask to whom they will listen when only the world is speaking to them. So we need to talk to our children. And we need to talk among ourselves as adults about adultery and its alternatives. We need to discuss the sin so that we can understand its ugliness and its destructive nature. We need to learn to recognize it when we meet it. And we need to learn how to hold each other accountable and build each other up so that we can be delivered from it. Because there is an alternative. The world does not have the corner on the market of physical pleasure and intimacy. So we need to learn well that what the world offers us in that area is a cheap and deadly alternative to the true intimacy and pleasure that God has designed for us. And our children need to hear that. We all need to be reminded of that. So yes, we need to talk about the seventh commandment. We need to talk about how God's grateful people are called to cherish chastity. And that's our theme this evening. God's grateful people are called to cherish chastity. As we consider that theme this evening, I want to talk to you first about what God desires for us and therefore how we should accept His calling to holiness. But then secondly, I want to talk with you about the world's weak substitutes that we are to avoid. And so we'll talk about avoiding all temptations to impurity. First then, God's people cherish chastity by accepting our calling to holiness. But, but notice this isn't just a calling to holiness in general. We are called to that. Every aspect of our lives we're called to devote uniquely to the Lord. And that's a calling to holiness in general. But the seventh commandment hones in on a particular aspect of our lives. We're called to holiness in our most intimate relationships. This is a call to holiness with the spouse whom we love. A call to holiness with regard to how we receive pleasure from others. A call to holiness in the way we regard sensuality and emotions and intimacy. You see, sin ruined mankind's relationships. When Adam and Eve sinned, it hurt, and in some ways it broke their relationship. Although they were created by God and set in the garden naked, without any covering, they had no shame in that. They had no desire, no compulsion to hide any part of themselves, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, from each other. But then they sinned. And all of a sudden, they felt the need to cover up. All of a sudden, they were no longer of one mind. All of a sudden, she was not Eve, but that woman, when Adam spoke to man. Sin hurt them. It, it separated them. It ruined their relationship. And that was just the start. Soon comes Lamech, who takes two wives. And jealousy enters deeply into the picture, causing a man's wives to become rivals. 
Sin ruined this relationship that should have been intimate and holy and perfect. Openness was suddenly replaced by secrecy and shame. Pleasure became the goal of relationships rather than merely a tool for deepening those relationships. Marriage became something that men regard as a curse rather than the blessing it was intended to be. There is an antidote. There is a return to God's intended blessing for those who are in Christ. But to understand the antidote, we need to understand God's perfect plan for man's intimate relationships. And we need to understand our new identity when we come to faith in Christ. God's plan for man's intimate relationships was marriage. That sounds obvious. But we need to remember that marriage was not a product of the fall. <clears throat> it, was, it was God's intention from the very start. And so... In Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. He recognized that man needed more than just himself. He needed a companion who would complete him, who would fulfill him. And so then God paraded before Adam every other living creature. And Adam examined them. He considered them. He named them according to their attributes. But... For Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. As amazing as those other creatures were, they were not what Adam needed. And so God put Adam to sleep. He took from his side a rib and from that bone of his bone, from the DNA and the molecules that comprised a part of Adam, God brought forth a second who was like him but not identical to him, who would complement him and complete him. God created woman from man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the very start, that was God's plan. That was His intention. First He showed Adam every other creature so He could see that none of them, as great as they were, as amazing as they were, none of them was what He needed. And then... God showed him the one that was perfect. God joined them in marriage so that they would never be separated. Proverbs 18 verse 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's marriage. It's a good thing. It's a conduit of God's favor. Despite what the television says, despite the jokes of the comedians, marriage is a good thing. And it remains a good thing today in the eyes of God. Proverbs 18.22 speaks the truth for our day. 1 Corinthians 7 says that marriage helps us to avoid sin, strengthens us in our relationship with God. The end of Ephesians 5 shows that marriage serves even as a witness, as a living picture of Christ and His church. So really, marriage today has become even more than it was at the start. Back then, it was a way to complete and perfect mankind. But today, it not only does that, but it, it helps to protect us from sin and it gives us an, op, an, uh, an opportunity to show the world the love of Christ for His church and the devotion of the church for Christ. Marriage remains God's plan for us and a rich source of blessing for those married in Christ. But it's not a blessing for everyone. We don't have to look far to see that, right? All the miserable marriages that we see in our culture. And almost invariably, the misery that they experience comes from 
Not submitting that marriage to Christ. See, those who are in Christ are different. In God's eyes and by the power of His Holy Spirit, we have been transformed and we are being transformed. No longer are we God's enemies who are enslaved to sin and destined to die. Now we have died. We've risen again. We're freed from sin. We're holy in God's sight. And we're called to a holiness that reflects the very image of God. That's who we are. That's our new identity. And our calling. Our calling in that new identity. Well, we just read about that a few minutes ago in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave Himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God. God made us to bear His image. Now sin ruined that. It distorted that image and made us a false picture of God. But now God is rebuilding that image within us. And that's not something in which we're passive. Day by day we're called to put off the old man in its sins and in its sinful passions. And we're called to put on... The holiness and the righteousness that reflects Christ. The righteousness that we learn about in the Bible. The the righteousness to which we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That means living a life of love. By which we forgive others. By which we put others first. Showing forth the light of Christ. So that the words that we speak, the actions that we do, demonstrate to people the character of God. Doing it all as a means of giving thanks to God who has rescued us from our sin and given us assurance that we're part of the eternal kingdom. In these ways, we who are in Christ are different from those who don't know Christ. And that has significant implications for how we seek holiness. Those apart from Christ, they fill their lives with sexual immorality and impurity and greed and obscenity and more. Why? It's because they're enslaved to sin and to rebellion against God. And those sins, they give momentary pleasure, either of the body or of the mind. And that's what drives them. They want pleasant feelings at the moment and they want to forget at all costs. They want to forget what's coming because they know in their hearts that someday they have to answer for everything they've done. And they want to forget that, even if it's only for right now, even if it's only for tonight. Just help me To forget, to cover it up, to pretend that this is all there is. But we're different. In Christ we're holy and we're called to reflect the holiness of God. And so 1 Thessalonians 4 says that each of us should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, we're called to control our bodies. Not be controlled by them. We're called to use our bodies in a way that honors God. Not to allow our passions free reign to dishonor the Lord and to distort His image. Likewise, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, No one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this way. We're to put others first. We're not just to use them as as instruments for our pleasure. We're not just to, to misuse them and cast them aside. We're to put them first, to serve them, to love them, to honor God through them. We naturally seek only what pleases us for the moment, no matter who it hurts. But for doing that, we would be condemned eternally. And God in His grace has delivered us from that condemnation. Now we belong to Him. And so, 1 Corinthians 6 says, You were bought at a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Don't, don't put yourself first, your pleasures, your body, your uh, momentary experience, but honor and serve and glorify God who has delivered you from your sin. And as a means of serving God, serve others. Serve your neighbor by refusing to use him or her as a mere object for your pleasure. Serve your neighbor by protecting him or her from the consequences of sin. Serve your spouse, you who are married, by regarding your body as their possession used to bless them. Serve others and thereby serve God who bought you back from your condemnation. As we apply those principles, brothers and sisters, our lives will look radically different from the lives of those who don't know Christ. Folks cut off from God think only about the moment and only about themselves. They get into relationships simply because they want security or honor or pleasure at the moment. They serve others only as a means of getting service for themselves. They try to do as little as they can in order to receive as much as they can. It's all about receiving, all about pleasure, all about me. But we are to live for God and therefore we put others first. In marriage, that means we must daily decide to love our spouse. Young people, children, I want you to hear that. Love is first of all not an emotion. It's first of all not a warm fuzzy feeling. Love is first of all a decision. God chose to love us when there was nothing lovable in us. And we are called to make that love commitment toward the spouse to whom God joins us. Each day you choose to love your wife, to love your husband. That doesn't mean the warm, fuzzy feelings don't happen. That doesn't mean that we don't delight in them. We do. And more and more and more as the years pass. But it's all rooted in that conscious, intentional, continual commitment. I've chosen to love this person and by God's grace I will continue. And having determined to love this person, we show that decision concretely. You show it by finding ways to serve your spouse. You show it by putting aside your desires in order to fulfill their desires. You show it by refusing to compare your spouse to others. You show it by building up your spouse with the words you speak or by the words you refuse to speak. You show it by praying for your spouse, praying for their blessing, and then praying that God would make you part of the answer to that prayer. And as you strive to show love to your husband or wife, your relationship with that person will grow more and more Christ-like. And you will take more and more delight in that wife to whom God has joined you, that that husband to whom He has knit you together. And you will know, he who finds a spouse finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Nor are you exempt who are unmarried. This calling to holiness, to chastity, is a calling also for you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's good to be unmarried. Not that it's easy, sometimes it most certainly is not. But it's good because it gives you the opportunity to serve God all the more. You unmarried ladies, you're brides of Christ 100% of the time. You unmarried men, you are husbands joined to the Lord 100% of the time. So serve God by making that daily commitment to love and serve Him exclusively. Strive to find new ways to serve Him. Spend time praying to Him, reading His Word, getting to know Him. 
Find ways to introduce others to your beloved. As Ephesians 5 verse 16 says, we should be redeeming the time in serving God. And you have been given opportunities to serve that those who are married lack because they're consumed with serving their spouse. They're consumed with the things of the world. And meanwhile, preserve your holiness, your purity for the spouse whom God may give you. Because when we're single, we can't know, can we? Whether God has a spouse for us or whether it's His intention that we would live celibate lives the rest of our life. But if He has someone out there for you, would you not want that person to be guarding their holiness, guarding their purity? Would you not be flattered to learn that your future wife or husband has saved him or herself for you? And if you would want that, shouldn't you preserve that same gift for them? Ephesians 5, verses 19 and 20 has wonderful counsel for God's single servants. Those verses call us to speak to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you do enter a relationship with that special someone, spend time reading God's Word with that person. Spend time praying to God and worshiping together often. Because the more time you consciously spend together with God, the easier it will be to hold yourselves accountable and to avoid sin. And when temptation does arise, which it will, do nothing for which you cannot give God thanks. That's a good rule anyway, isn't it? If you can't begin or pause what you're doing together with that special someone in order to give God thanks for what you're doing. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be doing it. If we can't give God thanks for it, if our conscience bothers us in that, then, then we're not doing what's right. Well, more could be said, but that's the heart of it. We're called to cherish chastity, to cherish purity. And we begin that by accepting our calling to holiness. Remember, brothers and sisters, this is not a burden, this calling to holiness. It's a blessing. It's a blessing that those outside of Christ can't even begin to enjoy. When we recognize that this calling is God's gift to us, it, begins, it becomes a blessing indeed. But we also have a negative calling here, calling to avoid all temptations to impurity. We heard in Ephesians 5... How it says, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. And why? Because that's not who we are anymore. We're not to be characterized by filth and commonness and the world in its brokenness. We're to be characterized by that which is holy and perfect and pure in Christ. So the Apostle warns us, you, this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Did you hear that, young people, young adults? No such person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. That's serious. And so we are urged in verses 11 and 12, have no fellowship 
with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Brothers and sisters, this calls for wisdom. Our world is absolutely not shy about promoting precisely the opposite of what God desires of us. Turn on the TV. Watch the movies. What relationship advice will you get? What relationship advice will you get on Instagram or Discord or Facebook for that matter? You'll be told, follow your feelings wherever they go. Live for the moment and don't worry about the consequences. If the relationship, if the activity feels wrong, get out. And if it feels right, if it feels good, if it feels like it completes you, then then embrace it no matter what. That's the, the counsel that our culture gives to us and to our children without our consent. And folks, that counsel is poison. It's poison that will deprive us, if we follow it, of our eternal inheritance. God our Father and Christ our King say that the sin of adultery is absolutely deadly. Proverbs 6 says it so powerfully. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. The adulterer will be punished. There can be no escape. What did we just hear? Because of such things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So we're called to reject Adultery, the sin itself and all the sins related to it, regardless of what the world says contrary. And that's not just by adultery. We're not talking just about engaging in intimate relations with a person who is not your spouse. By adultery, we're talking about all the associated sins of the mind and of the heart. We're talking about any kind of intimacy outside of the relationship of a man and a woman who are righteously married before God. Any intimate relations outside of that, short of, you know, holding hands, the the courtship type of stuff, it's sin. It falls under this sin of adultery. It's taking that which God has not ordained for us. And it's poison. The world, for instance... The world says divorce is acceptable. It's better to be divorced than miserable. But Jesus in Matthew 5 says there is no divorce without adultery. Either the one who leaves is the adulterer or the one who sends away is an adulterer. Either way, the Lord hates it when we tear apart that which he has joined together. Can we escape unscathed when we have embraced what God hates? The world says there's nothing wrong with being intimate with strangers or with a variety of people. Or those who mean much to you even though you're not married. The world says there's no harm. In fact, they say it's healthy to feed that passion. But God, God instead says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body is a member of Christ. Therefore, he says, flee from sexual immorality. He says, every sin that a man does is outside his body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. When you commit those adulterous sins, it's like taking Christ into that situation. Would you dare? 
But the world responds, well, at least there's no harm in daydreaming, right? So they send you internet links to explicit images. They promote movies that reveal what should be kept between a husband and a wife. They market romance books that set young hearts aflutter in ways they shouldn't be set aflutter. And they claim it's fine, it's normal, it's natural. So why fear it? But Jesus says, not at all. Not at all. Matthew 5, verse 28 I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so serious is this that Jesus says we would be better gouging out our eyes than giving it in to that sin. We must flee from lustful looks, lust-filled speech, lust-saturated thoughts. Have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. It's true, as the world tells us, that it's natural to give in to the passions and the lusts of the flesh. It's natural to desire those intimate relationships with a variety of people or with people with whom you're not married. It's natural to desire relations between two women or two men. It's natural to desire to focus your heart on those lustful thoughts and feelings. But what comes natural to the sinful man is abhorrent to God. And God Himself is hurt by those sins of impurity because He is dishonored. When we teach the world that serving God makes no difference in our lives, He is dishonored. When we present to the world a false image of who He is, He is dishonored. When we reject what He calls good and when we accept what He calls evil. Sins of impurity hurt God's honor. They hurt us and those around us also. Divorce hurts. It destroys the unity created by God, destroys the image of God in those who who unrighteously pursue that divorce. Lustful thoughts hurt. They give us unrealistic expectation that, that will decrease the one whom God gives us in our eyes. Flirting hurts. It creates an intimacy A deep intimacy sometimes between two people who ought not to have that kind of intimacy. Intimacy outside of marriage hurts. It's a means of stealing what belongs to your future spouse and creates a guilt that will damage your marriage to come. Adultery, lust, impurity, unchastity, they're never a good thing. They might come natural, but they always, always hurt us. Because we're always hurt when we put some put ourselves first above someone else. When we put our desires before God's. Therefore, we need to hate both the sin and its temptation. And hating it, we should strive to reject it with all our power. The question is, how do we do that? Because the passions of the flesh are powerful. And the temptations of the world are pervasive. And so even though we know that the sin ultimately will hurt us, even though it fills us with shame and guilt, still we keep returning to it. These sins are a weak spot because they come so natural and because our culture is so saturated with temptations to these sins against our chastity, these sins against our holiness. And really, isn't that why Satan pushes them so hard? He hates it when we bear the image of God. He hates that we're being remade into that holiness. 
And so he wants to do whatever he can to corrupt the image of God within us. And if that means that he needs to put on display parts of flesh that are going to excite our hearts and minds in ways they shouldn't be excited. And if that means that he's going to have to get in there and muddle around with your marriage until it is utterly destroyed from the inside out, then that's what he's going to do in order to destroy that holiness that you're to display to the world. But God does not leave us to our own devices, does He? First, He tells us to repent of the sins which we are committing. That starts inside. It starts with the determination to turn away from that which God has forbidden. Sometimes even that is more than we can do. Even that inner resolution. So we need to start with prayer. That God would cause us to hate that sin with prayer. That God would cause us daily to reject the premise that that sin defines us. We need to pray that God would lead us to repent. And then we need to pray for His forgiveness. And ask for the strength to turn aside from that sin. Just today. Let tomorrow worry about its own troubles. Pray for strength today. And then, having prayed... Believe that God will answer you and start removing the temptations from your eyes. Our culture is filled with images and ideas that draw us into impurity. And we need to learn, especially at a young age, young people, especially at a young age, when your eyes look on something that your heart immediately says, I shouldn't be seeing that. Your inclination, because of the sinfulness in us, your inclination is to look all the more carefully because... You might not see it again. But instead, we need to learn to quickly avert our eyes. We need to learn how to turn aside. We need to learn that that is going to pollute us. And so we need to not allow that. The Lord says to live carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. That means not tempting ourselves, not coming right up to the line and hoping we won't fall over. We need to guard our eyes so as to help reject these temptations from our thoughts. Romans 13 verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make no provision. Don't think about it. Don't entertain the idea. Don't give any opportunity for those temptations to take hold of your heart and mind. But instead, as Philippians 4 tells us, and this is the the counteract. You know, if you have a temptation that is seeking admission into your mind. It's not enough just to turn aside from the evil. You have to turn towards something good to replace it. And Ephesians 4 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Give your heart and your mind to these things. And remember that you can't do it on your own. Clearly, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to begin with praying. We need to ask God for the strength to get through it. But God has also given us, in addition to the Holy Spirit, He has given us one another. Remember what we heard here. We should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always... We're to do that together, brothers and sisters. And then he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
We are responsible for each other. We are very truly our brother's keepers. And that means when you're struggling with a particular sin, you need to go to a brother or to a sister whom you trust and you need to ask them for help. Share with them what your struggle is. Ask them if they have any insights for you. But most of all, ask them to hold you accountable. Privately, please come to me once a week. And ask how I'm doing. Because the knowledge that that person is going to ask you. And that they know of your struggle. That knowledge will impart strength to you. Ask them if you can call them in your time of need. In your time of struggle. Because sometimes you're having a hard time walking away from it. But you can pick up the phone and hit the speed dial. And hearing that person's voice on the other end. I mean we ought to know God's watching. We've got to answer to Him. But God gives us that person to make it concrete, to make it real. And we need to use that. And when God does call that special someone into your life, rejoice in that. And set up boundaries so that you don't ruin what could be a wonderful and godly relationship by taking things too far too fast. But at the same time, don't delay forever. In our culture, we've gotten this idea that, that it's okay to, to date, to court for years upon years upon years, but all that's doing is ramping up the temptation and almost ensuring that we're going to enter into marriage having already crossed a line that shouldn't be crossed until we say, I do. So when you know, then stand before God and His people and say, I do. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is we need to do All that we're able to do by God's strength and by His wisdom to avoid temptations to impurity. We can't do it on our own. We need His power. We need the strength of our friends in the Christian community. And we need to daily struggle with it. Fight against it. But as we seek that narrow path, Brothers and sisters, God will strengthen us. God will guide us. And God will bless us with the purity that we seek. But only if we seek it. Only if we talk with one another about it. Only if we grow to desire this excellent gift of chastity to which God has called us each and every one. Amen. Let us pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father. You have called us to this chastity and to this particular holiness in the most intimate part of our lives. And yet we know we are weak. We will give in in our thoughts, our words, our hearts, our deeds. Unless you strengthen us and surround us with the support that we need. So Father, we pray that you would provide. And that you would make it our delight To cultivate holiness in our lives, holiness in our relationships, holiness within the church, which is your kingdom. And Father, we pray that in all of this, you might be glorified as your people turn aside from all that would corrupt that holy image of yourself in them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us confess together in song that we desire... We desire to be devoted in all of the aspects of our lives to the Lord. We do that by singing number 462, Take My Life and Let It Be. And we'll sing all the stanzas of 462.